Good morning. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. This is the post-Independence Day, July 5, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we've invited UCI political science professor to cover what has not been said about the work in progress, the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. In doing that, we'll talk about the original charter of the EU, the current situation, and what might be. Topics this large will devote the whole hour to Jeffrey Kopstein. Be right back after a short one. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the whole hour is UCI political science professor and chair of that department, Jeffrey Kopstein, who fill in many of the blanks that we have open about the United Kingdom's vote last month to withdraw from the European Union. He's well suited to take this on as his research interests include comparative politics, dictatorship and democracy, ethnic politics, political violence and post-communism. Prior to joining the UCI faculty a year ago, he held appointments at the University of Toronto and the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's lived in Germany and Russia and speaks both of those languages. He earned his undergraduate degree in political economy and PhD degree at UC Berkeley. He joins me in studio today to talk about the original chart of the Union, European Union, the UK vote, and what is beyond. Welcome to Ask Leader, Jeffrey Kopstein. Thank you very much for having me. You've been a scholar of polarization, transition of many kinds and breakups, even ironies in various societies and political systems. How does the UK exit from the European Union strike you? Well, like the, the one thing that really struck me is how unexpected this was for anybody. Um, nobody, nobody predicted that this would uh, come to pass. None of my friends, none of my Facebook friends, which have to be distinguished from real friends, but none of my friends or Facebook friends or scholarly contacts, nobody expected it. And what that kind of taught me is one thing, we need to get out more because we, as scholars, we, we um, sometimes can just circulate within our own kind of pre-existing epistemological communities um, and we never get outside of them. So this was a real surprise for me um, and I think it was a surprise for everybody. Well anecdotally there was one couple that would visit neighbors uh, near the, the radio station and they gave us always an earful of their resentment about the status quo. They're the demographic of the people that voted to leave right. and so we I got steady doses of their their sensibilities about this and uh, and like uh, 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 fear combined with intransigence of, of their and their and their lack of willingness to interact with any of the Pakistanis in the region where they live in the the Yorkshire district. It's well, it's interesting that so we a place that we go on vacation sometimes. One of our neighbors there is British, and he was always for the breakup of the European Union. Always, okay. And he never he never wanted to be part of the European Union. But we always thought he was a bit of a lunatic, and so we never paid him much attention. We never thought that this was a kind of a represented a giant core mainstream of British politics that could be brought to fore. So let's go now back to 1951, where the European Union Charter was first established. This is a necessary to look at 
how well it's been performing for the continent since World War II. Right. Well, I mean, 1951, um, six countries get together, Germany, France, uh, Italy, and the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, and, and Luxembourg. Luxembourg. And they get together and they decide they're going to form a coal and steel union. Why coal and steel? It's actually quite easy to understand. Coal and steel are the implements that you need to make war. And so the design of the European Union was to bring peace and prosperity on the European continent through economic integration. What Over time what happened is they decided that um, you couldn't just bring together coal and steel because to make a level playing field you had to have all the inputs to coal and steel. But that implied also regulation. For example, harmonizing environmental regulations, child labor laws, women's rights, all the things that would, would potentially give one or the other partners um, unfair competitive advantage. So they had to harmonize more and more. And this logic brought them closer and closer together. So eventually, by 1958, 57, 58, they decided they couldn't just have coal and steel anymore. They had to move to full-on economic integration, which is where you get the European economic community from. And so the logic, this logic, just to answer your question, um, of creating peace and prosperity through economic harmonization, it was hugely successful. I mean, Germany and France stopped fighting. That was the, the rivalry which pulled apart the continent for a century before that point, for a century before now. And that's been hugely successful. So in all of this, in all of this potential breakup of the European Union um, and France and England's, uh, Great Britain's destabilizing of the European Union, it has to be kept in mind what the original design and goal and, and benefits of the European Union actually were. So that harmonizing, standardizing feature got lost in the remain uh, movement debate when people were getting caught up in the the opposite experience of a baker having to run by their their whole recipes and and all the bureaucracy and red tape for them to get some kind of clearance to participate in that market. So this is this was probably what was difficult for academics to weigh uh, to weigh in with as what was being heard more. And I I'm leaping around my own uh, script okay. here, but the but uh, on media, National Public Radio reported that most of the media, uh, a preponderance of the media was pro leaving the EU. And so that's probably what happened with these features that you're that you would bring out and versus what the the anecdotal, you know, woe is me, I've got to keep running my recipe by the the bureaucrats in Brussels. Well, I think the Remain campaign ran um it was kind of a it, it was kind of a baleful campaign. They they essentially sold it as um, s saying to the British population, "Look, if you leave the European Union, this is going to cost you a lot of money, and there's going to be economic costs, right?" And the problem was is that that they lost sight of the broader vision of what the European Union actually was. Now, to be fair, Britain was only about three quarters in the European Union. They were never part of the euro, for example, and they never joined the Schengen the, the movements. And we'll, we'll talk about that, I, I, the free movement of people, um, part of the European Union. Um, but they, even so, the campaign to remain was really sold on very narrow uh, economistic grounds. And this allowed uh, the Leave campaign to say, you can't really trust the economists. You can't really trust the experts. Um, they're just the elites. Um, the, the Leave campaign was really cast as a campaign 
of the little guy. In some ways, this, the, the way that the Trump campaign is cast in the United States is the little guy against the elites. Um, of course, to argue that uh, Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage were, 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 weren't themselves elites uh, is kind of silly. But, you know, that's the, the same way you can't argue that Trump isn't really an elite. It's kind of silly isn't, uh, that he's a little guy. Um, but even so, this is the way the campaign was pitched. So then uh, you talked about, uh, in preparation for this, that the since 1951, there were these amazing dividends of exacting good behavior from within and beyond the membership boundaries. Right. Can you tell us all about that? So the EU really had two great benefits. Um, and first of all, as, we, as I said at the beginning, that um, it, it basically it hitched up the German economic power. See, after World War II, here was the situation. Germany was, was uh, Germany still had great industry, but it was politically discredited on the global stage because of the Nazis. France had a, had a weak economy, but of course was part of the, the victory coalition at the end of World War II. And so the deal was is that you'd hitch German economic power to French political acceptance. And this would kind of raise Europe from the ashes. And in that, it was hugely successful. Um, and the European continent is highly highly integrated today, and is it's wealthy. I mean, you know, they, they have recessions like we do, but they're they are essentially when they have downturns, their downturns starting at a very high level. So that's the internal part of it. You've created these freedoms where people can move around, where people can vacation or even live in other Take places. Take their pensions and go. Take their pensions. If you're a British pensioner, and this is something that's going to come into question, of course, and right. you're living in Spain. You can collect your British pension in Spain and also get all your health care, your mail delivery, everything right done in Spain as if you were, hadn't even left Britain. Um, and this is you know, quite remarkable. Um, so that's one kind of achievement. But there's a second achievement that people don't really talk about very much anymore. But it's, it, it really is the story of the 1990s. When, the, when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe, you had all of these countries, you know, um, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Baltic states of Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Romania, and then you also, of course, you had Romania, and then, of course, the former Yugoslavia, which had just been in a war. And all of these countries had, were, were unhitched from the former communist world. And the question was, is what would become of them? Would they be democratic? Or would they kind of revert back to the, the dictatorships they had been before? And, or would they start squabbling over, over nationalities? Would the Hungarians start saying, well, what we really want is we want all of Transylvania back, where, where there are two million Hungarians living, which is inside of Romania. And we're gonna start fighting about that. And that was a big question. It was a huge question, right? Would would essentially be as if communism had never happened and they just revert back to the old squabbling that they had before. And really what the European Union did is the following, is they said, look, guys, this is what the Europeans did. If you behave and you don't hammer on each other and you don't, um, you don't misbehave and you, um, you do this one small thing, that is you have to pass all 10,000 pages of European Union regulations into your own national law, right? That's 88,000, sorry, 88,000 pages of 10,000 regulations oh, okay. into, into, into your own national law. You get to be a member of the European Union. 
And if you're a member of the European Union, not only do you get to partake of all of the benefits of integration, economic integration, but you also get, and this is something we don't have in the United States, but they have in a place like Canada, that is transfer payments, what are called um, um, payments of structural funds and social cohesion funds in the European Union that transfer money from the rich areas to the poor areas. And of course, all of these East European countries, by definition, were the poorest areas of what would be a unified Europe. And they benefited tremendously. They still benefit tremendously from those transfer payments from um, um, Western Europe to Eastern Europe. And the the upshot of all of this is the European Union not only became a vehicle for securing the peace on the European continent between the Germans and the French, it also became a vehicle for raising up what had been third world countries to make them developed countries. And the original model for this, the original model for this was Spain and Portugal who got back in, in 19, who got in in 1986. Oh, that late, yeah. Uh, very late in the day. After trying very hard, I mean, Spain had applied in 1963 to become part of the European but Union. They're but they're too indigent then. Well, it was, it was, being, it was ruled by a fascist dictator, Franco, Franco, Francisco big... Franco. Oh, and so EU officials would show up at the airport in Madrid and they'd see all of Franco's guys standing there with, with fascist Hitler salutes. And they would say, no, you can't get into the European Union if you look like that. You have to be a democracy. So once they wanted in so badly... Right? that the EU was in effect able to hold their feet to the fire. And same with Portugal. And then all of this money got transferred to Spain and Portugal to help them with their ports and their highways. And the upshot of this was that you took what were third world countries. I mean, when I was in high school, right. I'm pretty old, when I was in high school, we went to um, um, Spain right, to play basketball. And this was a third world country. This was a country with old women dressed in black leading around donkeys with sticks on their back, right? And they took those countries, and they, part of the EU integration was taking those countries and turning them from the third world of Europe into the California and Oregon of Europe. And that was a huge difference, right? It really, and the EU, the, the East European countries after communism, they saw what had happened to Spain and Portugal after 1986, and they said, we want that. And that effect, that kind of soft power of the EU, really helped to transform um, Eastern Europe. And I hasten to add that the dividend for member countries, the haves, was it was a very stabilizing effect over the whole continent. So any kind of defense expenditures could be pared down, offset by all the, the, the their membership and their transfer payments to those. This is an exactly. It's an ex it's a very important point. It's an irony that the EU's sole, really their best tool in their kit box of foreign policy was the prospect of enlargement, right? That is, anytime they had a problem on their periphery, they could say to those countries, if you're good, we'll let you in, right? We'll let you in. And this would induce um, good behavior. What do I mean by good behavior? It, they, well, you said hung, that the Hungarian partition peacefully um, existed wherever in whichever border Behind right. whichever border they were. If you think about it, in 1999, when uh, the United States was about to um, start engaging in a aerial bombing campaign of the of Serbia, right? Part of Serbia, Vojvodina, is inhabited by Hungarians. We were going to be bombing that area. Not only did the 
Hungarians not say anything to us because they wanted in both into NATO and into the European Union. They allowed us to use bases in their own country to launch our, our uh, to service our airplanes, um, to go uh, bomb areas. It was mostly about Kosovo, yes. right? But there were also parts of, of Serbia that were inhabited by Hungarians and the Hungarians never made a peep. So what it did, it induced three kinds of behavior, non, non or moderate nationalism, market conforming behavior, that is the construction of a regulatory market state, which is like, face it, it's what we have in the United States too, the, uh, and, and in all of Europe. And number three, adhering to norms of liberal democracy, that is regular, free and fair elections, and the, um, um, the construction of a constitutional rights-based state. And that's, all of those things were guaranteed by the European Union. And if the European Union weren't there today, or it weren't as attractive, then all of that could start to unravel. And also they lose that tool in their kit, right, for, let's say, making for more um, peaceful states on what is the new periphery, right? Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, um, and of course, um, um, those members of those parts of Yugoslavia that are, that are not in the European Union yet. So when we talk about all those pages and regulations that would be incorporated into national law, you take issue with the debate that said that the European Union was not is not a representative body because, as you say, that all the elected officials from each country are in the European Union representing their respective countries. Right. So, I mean, this requires a slight, slightly boring detour into the institutions of the European Union because a lot of people, what was interesting, on the day after the vote to leave June in, 24th. in Britain, um, the most Googled term in Britain was, what is the EU? Meaning a lot of people who voted to leave didn't even understand what they were leaving. So it's probably worth it for your listeners, and I don't mean to be patronizing, but to actually understand the institutional structure of the European Union. The European Union has um, four bodies, right? And they're pretty easy to understand. Um, the, the first of all, the first body is a permanent Pretty small bureaucracy, in fact. Um, like an executive About 3,000 3, people living in Brussels who are drawn from all over the European Union. They're people you apply. It's like a civil service job. You apply and you're given a job, and that's called the commission, right? The European Commission. That's what people hate. People think it's this giant bureaucracy like, I don't know, like the Pentagon or the, the, the it's CIA. It's a smaller office than it's, we thought. It's very small, and it's quite transparent. Okay. Right? Okay, so that's number one. Um, they basically execute rules. Right, uh, the way that any bureaucracy does. The second um, uh, office is the second part of the bureau of the EU governance, if you will, consists of each member state delegates people to go to Brussels as part of what's called the European Commission. The European Commission is the big body that makes regulations. That's where all the regulations come out of Europe. But the, uh, while, while the content of the regulations or EU law is not itself subject to, demo to democracy, the people who are sent there are, of course, come from democratically elected governments, right, all right. over Europe. So the notion that it's undemocratic, it has to be, that has to be qualified, right. right? That has to be qualified. It's not entirely true. They're coming from delegate, they're delegated from democratically elected governments. They, they are the ones who issue regulations on everything from, in Europe, from 
the environment to the standardized uh, transportation of geese all all over Europe, right? And that's what you were talking about with cookbooks. And uh, there was a very funny, funny um, uh, cartoon that came out um, afterwards of somebody trying to burn the European Union flag, but it wouldn't burn because <laughs> EU regulations are that flags must be made from non-flammable materials, right? right? right. And so that kind of sum summarizes it all. And so what happens is that each member state must pass EU regulations. And this is part of a treaty that they sign. The democratically elected governments of the EU sign treaties, right? And um, one of the one aspect, but one important aspect of the treaty is that each member state must pass EU regulations into its own national law. Right? And all that the EU does, all that the Commission does, is it watches to make sure that all the member states pass those laws into which national legislation. So what people, what people feel as undemocratic is that they see their own legislatures passing legislation that they themselves, that they have, that the legislatures themselves, in the case of Britain, the parliament, is powerless to do anything about. Right. And so in that sense, there is a democratic deficit. Right. Okay. But it's not because the regulations themselves are non-democratically passed. That's not true at all. They're passed as the result of the representatives who are delegated Doing the bidding to them. There. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, so that's the, that's the institution number two. So we've got the commission and we've got the, um, the, the and we've got the council. council. Right? The third is the parliament. There is an EU parliament which is elected. But the parliament in Europe is largely, it's not completely powerless. It, it, it only has a small range, a restricted range of, of regulations that it itself can rule upon, right? And so what happens is because it's powerless, a lot of the people that are elected there are kind of grandstanders, are the B team of their own country's politics, including... I should add the head of who's just stepping down of the United Kingdom Independence Party. Lafarge, Farage, Le, wow. Farage, yeah, wow. Nigel Farage. So he is a he is a member there. So the weird thing is is that he is an anti-EU member of the European Union Parliament, right? Now that sounds weird, of course, but it's not all that weird. For example, you noted that I just moved from Canada. Uh, a year ago, the Canadian Parliament has, of course, members who are from the Bloc Québécois. That is a separatist national party which only gets representation from Quebec, whose main goal is to separate from Canada. Right? So this is not all that unusual. These are nationalist separatist um, parties that are members of of the European Parliament, and in fact, the European Parliament has many members of right-wing populist parties from various member states, right, from virtually every member state, that are anti-EU. Like, right. would the autonomous regions around Spain be also represented? Well, that could, yes, and that's, an, that's another angle, too. You could get autonomous parties, but you also get kind of, you know, right-wing populist anti-immigrant parties, like UKIP in, in Great Britain, right. that are, are members... United Kingdom Independent Party. Right, the United Kingdom Independent Party, uh, Independence Party, uh, who are members of, of the um, European Parliament. And 
so what and that's so that's institution number three we've now got the commission the council the, the parliament, parliament and now the fourth is the court the european court of justice and it's actually quite an important one because what the court does it basically any member state actions in member states that violates the 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 treaties that the member states have signed people can come to the court and said my own state has violated the it's an agreement that it's signed Right. Wow. So one of the things that the, the way that a lot of, of the case uh, case law within the European court has developed out of um, the rights to equal pay for equal work for women. Those were the, some of the original cases right, that came up because the treaties all say that. And of course, the reality, just as in our country here, the reality is that's not true. And so that got brought up to before the European Court of Justice. And so this becomes another instance that is above the member states, right? But of course, courts themselves are always above the member states, including people complain about the Supreme Court right, of the right. United States. You know, who elected these nine unelected men and women, right? Um, nobody does, right? They're appointed. Courts are all courts are almost always that way. And so to say that the European Court of Justice is somehow undemocratic is, shows a kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of courts. And I'm not trying to be a propagandist for the European Union. I'm trying to Spell put it, it into up. some kind of perspective. Right. So those are the four big institutions. And that's what the population of Great Britain was making a judgment upon. For those of you who just tuned into this heady salon about the European Union, you're on tuning into Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM and streaming live all over the world on KUCI.org. And my guest is UCI political science professor Jeffrey Kopstein talking about the work in progress, the United Kingdom's withdrawal from the European Union. Well, I, I'm seeing we're, we've got so many, uh, so much to cover and I'm, thinking we're going to we're going to have things we're going to come back to at a later date but i i wanted to find out why what you thought of uh, why did david cameron take this gamble and committing in 2013 to have this referendum before the united kingdom constituents well the common wisdom and i think it's probably true in this case is that he um he he had a problem on both the right wing of his party and the United Kingdom Independence Party, which was trying on the right that exists to the right too. The, to the right of his party, right? They they can be they're they're anti EU, anti foreigner, etc. And he had a problem. His problem was is that he was worried about both within his own party of people um, um, who were anti EU um, relieving him of leadership and losing votes. Um, to the United Kingdom Independence Party. So what he did is for temporary political electoral reasons, he said, look, if you reelect me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this up to a vote. He never thought it would go through. Nobody thought it would go through. Not that the vote wouldn't be held, a referendum. But there is no, there's really very, a very short history of referenda in Great Britain. I believe there's only been three of any consequence well, there was the one in 73, 75, yes. when the Labor Party came back into power. Yes. So re um, take that temperature there. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and so it, it's what I want to say is, is that it's, it's, it's not a long tradition. And the reason it's not a long tradition is constitutionally speaking, and this is a weird word to use in Great Britain, uh, the word yeah. constitutionally speaking, because in fact they have no written constitution, right. and that's right. a whole separate show you could have about about is Britain's constitutional tradition in fact stronger than the American constitution because it's not written. Because it's not written, there are practices that you can't overthrow. 
right? You can't get rid of. And one of those practices, one of those, the strongest thing about the British constitution, if you will, is parliamentary supremacy. So they hold, so Cameron, to answer your question, holds this vote for temporary, out of temporary political expediency, right? Wow. And now he's being, he Irony has been ironies. hoisted on his own petard, right? right he, he held this thing, which nobody thought would actually go through. And um, you ended up with a, and, and a giant percentage of the current ruling party, the Conservative Party in Great Britain, a giant percentage of its sitting members do not favor exit. Right. So the question is, now that the British people, they have voted to leave uh, the European Union, will Parliament actually follow through on what, from a constitutional standpoint, can only be considered an advisory decision? But with great political weight, an advisory decision of the European people. And there's a procedure by which they'll have to take, which is a whole separate question, which I'm sure you'll get into. So, well, so you're bringing up the phenomenon now. I want to talk about the fault lines in the UK because th yes. those are as much a concern. They got to live with each other as well as the fault lines in this this stabilizing project throughout the continent. So let's start with, the, in, in a, as brief a terms as you can, what concerns you about the fault lines? Because it is a very demographic schism going on at, for the, with the outcome and it was it was really a close a close it's election very close. Four, per, four percentage points which isn't gigantically close i mean the, a little over a million people uh, the, the, the canadian referendum of the, the, it was when the quebec was voting to leave it was 49.1 49.3% wow. voted to leave so it was very very close but so this was this is 4% which is you know it's 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 a chunk of people so Really, the big problem, and to really sum, to kind of go to the core of your question, the problem in Great Britain today is the social fault lines don't correspond at all to the party fault lines. Exactly. So you have a portion. So the the people who voted to leave were by and large older, working class, rural, or from smaller cities, not from London, um, non-immigrant. Um, those are the people who mostly voted to leave. The people that wanted to stay were tended to be from London, right, or from larger from larger um, um, trading cities, um, much younger, um, economically mobile. That is the people who stood to gain from the benefits of economic integration, um, and. So, in essence, the people who voted to leave because they're older won't have to live with their decision for as long as the people. Yeah, really, they are. Just it's like Boris Johnson and Lef and Farage. They're they're leaving the mess they made, and the the retirees are leaving the this kind yeah. of chaos so, behind. So, so you have that. But you mean, so here's the problem. So you have this kind of social demographic uh, picture yes. of who voted to leave and who voted to stay. Now let's take the parties who purport to represent this whole population. And they they themselves, each of them, are divided on that question. You have pro-stay Tories, that is conservatives, and you have pro-stay Laborites. Now, we haven't talked about the whole left. No. The left itself is in complete chaos because the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, um, was in fact, it now appears, a closet lever. Right? He did not campaign to stay. Um, the stay people are mostly associated in the Labour Party with the Blair wing, with the kind of the right wing or the center right and right of the Labour Party. Those people who were the pro-Bushies, pro-Americans, but they were also pro-EU. 
And so you have the left part of the Labour Party, which is Corbyn, who's pretty much known as a staunch leftist, right, of the kind of old left variety. And he, um, he did not campaign to leave because he didn't want to be seen in the same room as the UKIP and the, the, the Independence Party, the anti-immigrant party. His but silence fact, was an endorsement. His silence, in effect, was endorsement. And what they're arguing is that a lot of young people so the reason the, 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 the Leave vote won is not because the Leave vote was so strong, it was because the Remain people did not turn out, get the turnout that they needed. If you actually look at the Leave districts compared to the Remain districts, the Leave districts had much higher turnout. That is, as we know, old people vote. I'm one of them. Okay, so um, I'm older. Um, I'm older, and yes, uh, I always per vote. Perhaps so. Yeah, so older people, world over, are known to vote in larger numbers. So the problem is that the two brand names of democratic politics, not only in Great Britain, in the world. Can you think of two better brand names in the world in democratic politics than the Tories and the Laborites? That is the Coke and Pepsi of democratic politics. Interesting, yeah. Right? That's even more so than the Democratic and the Republican Party in the United States, I would say. The, the origins seven up. The origins, exactly. The origins of democratic politics go back to, right, Labor and Tory. And now it appears that both both could be just as qualified for breakup as the European Union itself. That why don't you have a system in Great Britain by which social interests could be better represented by the parties who purport to represent them? And what form of, what form of electoral system and representative system does that? That's called proportional representation. That's what you have in most of the world outside right. of the United States the and system. Great Britain. Well, no, the part they have the parliamentary system. It's the it's the um, uh, the members the means by which votes are translated into seats. Our system here is first past the post. Whoever gets the most seats win, and that tends to produce a two-party system. That's the system they have in Great Britain too. But that's that method is essentially not accurately reflecting social interests inside of the parliament. Which right? is what's happening now. Which is what the problem is now. So we don't know, right? It appears to be that what's going to happen very soon, right, is you're going to have new leaders of, you're going to have new leaders of all the, all the parties in Great Britain. You're going to have new leaders of the, um, uh, the UKIP. You're going to have a new leader of the, the conservative conservatives. Party. And you're going to have a new leader of labor. Whether those new leaders will be able to solve the problem that I've just outlined, that is the lack of correspondence between social demography and parliamentary representation, I don't see how they're going to solve that problem. Um, maybe it'll change and things in politics can change in two years, right? So maybe that will change. Maybe what people want will change in two years. But as of today, if that is the main question of, of British, of, of, of politics in the UK, then new leaders are not going to solve that problem. Wow. So that's uh, going to be a, a matter of maybe who has more charisma to, to, to merge those fault lines because there, there's, there isn't any ideological commonality in, yeah, within it, each party. Uh, now, here's where a little comparison does help us. Okay. Right? We have the same problem in the United States. The old formula that I and that you grew up with in the United States is what did it mean to be a Republican? What did it mean to be a conservative? The main formula, the main formula was small government, low taxes, free markets, right? 
Where have you heard lately in the Republican Party about that? Right? You hear nothing about it, right? The, the, the main social cleavage in American politics that Donald Trump is representing looks a lot like that cleavage in Great Britain, right? right? That cleavage is cultural, social. It's not about, it's not about um, um, securing economic growth so much as it is protecting the, loser, uh, the losers, the non-winners of, of global trade, anti-trade, right? anti-global economic integration. It starts to sound a lot like the United Kingdom Independence Party. And so you could argue that the problem in Great Britain of the non-correspondence between the dominant social cleavages and political representation, we have that problem in the United States too. What's going to happen to all those people in the Republican Party whose main interest is low taxes and small government? Can they get excited about Donald Trump? Probably not. And that's the problem in Great Britain too. What about all the people that are really psyched about free trade? And, and, um, and European integration and the prospect for business growth in the Conservative Party. Are they going to get excited about well, Boris Johnson? No. It, it's all captured in one year. It's an economics emeriti, emeritus professor. I saw him sporting uh, this last weekend the sweatshirt with neither, but that box checked off. And he's like the, the de rigueur conservative ec- apologist for uh, all things uh, economics. So it's uh, he's... He's walking example. So, with of that. the interesting thing yeah. about that, yeah, out of those four parties of the of the the Labour, the Conservative, the uh, Democrat, and the Republican, the only ones that have been able to sustain a social coalition have been the Democrats at this point. Not, neither of those big four parties of the major democracies in the world are sustaining. None of the other three parties are sustaining their their social coalition. Well, so that's that's a fault line, a domestic fault yes. line. So what about the fault lines around the European Union? What right. are you concerned about? Well, um, I'm concerned about a number of things. I'm concerned about um, the question is, is that, OK, well, let's say Great Britain actually leaves. Right, which is what the, it will happen. What's well? This Slowly. is what, this is this is what there's. Well, it, that's a, a a separate question. It's okay, the speed right, we'll get at to which that. it will happen. Right, right. Maybe we should actually deal with that first. All right, let's do that. Then. Okay, so for Great Britain to actually leave, there is an article in the European Union treaties. The fifty. Article fifty. Once you declare you're going to leave, there's a time clock of two years. So that's when you say quickly, um, or slowly. That strikes me as quickly because at that point. That's a lot of letterheads changing. That's a lot of letterheads. It certainly is. And at that point, um, then they've got to start negotiating. Okay, what are they going to be the terms of the new relationship? Great Britain would like, would like to have all the same benefits of free trade, but without having the free movement of people. They don't want the people, right? They don't want more refugees. And that, that's a lot of what's driven all of this, I should say, is this idea that refugees are flooding from the Middle East into Europe, which they are, but they're not flooding into, Eng- into England, right? That's a misperception. They're flooding right. mostly into Germany at this point. Um, Germany and Sweden. So, yes, into Scandinavia in general. So, the, so the, Great Britain would like to have a relationship like Norway's, where you have all EU-compliant laws, but not the free movement of people. Um, the rest of Europe has the incentive under those circumstances, once they declare that, once Great Britain declares it would like out under Article 50 to say, no, take a hike, 
We don't want that relationship. As a matter of fact, we're so worried that other, other countries are going to use this option to leave the European Union. We're going to use you as an example to show how miserable we can make it for others. And we're going to make it miserable for you, too. So you're currently claiming, Great Britain, that you're paying in 350 uh, million pounds a week and uh, some that was messed with in the campaign. Yes, it was not really true, but it's to, to, that it's costing you to stay to stay in. If you want to be outside of the EU and not have a seat at the table, even at all, but be a member of the free of the of the common market of the European integrated zone, it's going to cost you five hundred million uh, pounds a month. Right? It's going to cost you more. And if you don't like it, fine. You can leave the European Union, and then you'll be trading under WTO rules, just as if you were the United States or Canada or Japan or any other country. And see how you're going to like that. And see how you're going to like it when your banks are no longer certified as being part of the European community. See how the city of London likes and that. And London's no longer the capital. Right? So yeah. this is... This is so it, it so, could happen, and um, it, they could make things really miserable for the UK. So that's number one. Um, that's assuming that the UK can even get out of this, right? That's assuming they can even that the, that Parliament has the ability to actually do this. And there's people who argue that that's not even the case. That that the Scottish can prevent all of this. But let's leave that aside. So. That's number one. So assuming they can they can get out, they, they've had this very bad negotiating position, which will take two years, and then they're out. And what will happen then to the European Union? Some people argue within Europe that um, this can lead to more Europe, that Britain has always been a laggard. Britain didn't join the, the euro. It didn't join Schengen. That is the free, the totally free movement of borderless movement of people. It's always been semi-outside, so good. No Britain, we can be more European. The French are making this argument, I believe. The Italians are making this argument, right? The concern of that is Germany doesn't like that idea right now, right? Because they figure more Europe, the Germans are going to have to pay for it. So the Germans are actually, it appears to be making a common front with the Poles, which is also now, another, people never thought this would come to pass, a big European heavyweight, right? Um, so, um, in fact, the, the president of the Europe of the, of the European Council is is um, um, a Pole, Donald Tusk, right? And um, so, the Poles are actually also anxious about more Europe right now. They like because they don't want to be forced to join the euro. Right? More Europe would mean everybody has to be in the euro. It's not an option anymore, right? And, um, you know, the euro places a gigantic constraint on your economy. Right. A gigantic constraint. Jackets. Well, Recovery. I mean, if you think about it, again, think about between Canada and the United States. Every time the Canadian economy takes a downturn, it's very simple. What the Canadians do, and this is happening right now, they lower the value of their dollar. The Canadian right? dollar, yeah. Which makes it easier to export stuff into the United States. So in Ontario, can start to export more cars and all its manufactured goods into the United States. Once you're a member of the euro, you can no longer devalue your own currency. So if you ever have an economic downturn, you have one tool less in your toolkit. Witness Greece, yeah. Exactly. Witness okay. Greece. Exactly. This is, you brought up exactly the right point. So they don't, they don't want to make, Poland doesn't want to be another Greece. So the Germans and the Poles appear to be making common cause with uh, against more Europe in the case that Britain decides to leave, against the French 
and the Italians who do want more Europe. So that appears to be the kind of the, the, the fault lines within Europe. But this is all hypothetical. And the interesting thing, it appears that the British had no plan. The British Leave campaign yeah. had zero plan yeah. about what to do on the next day. Hot right? air. What is going to be the plan? I mean, there's a very funny video going around right now that's called Brexit. And what it is is four kids standing at a dock on the lake. And they all are going to jump off the dock and they're joining hands. And so they run to the they run to the end of the dock and they jump into the lake. And one of them doesn't. And just watches the others as they jump off. And then he he's he, she this little girl walks backwards, 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 laughing the whole way. And then herself falls off the dock. Because she right? oh, she doesn't know where she's going. She has this is the leadership of the, the of the symbol. Leave campaign is this 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 um, little kid on the dock. And that's Britain had no plan whatsoever about what to do on the next day. All they knew is is they wanted out. And it's justifiable if they if their arguments are mainly cultural, justifiable not in some absolute sense, but in a political sense, they could do it. Um, it, it of course, it won't surprise you to know that the Germans had like 10 plans, right? The German finance right. ministry had thought about all of it's this. It's like the bunkers they built in World War One. They were sound. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this is the, the, system. The, and the Germans yeah. are very concerned, but they understand that they're the economic engine of Europe. And they they also knew that they they wanted to kind of minimize the, the both the short-term cost and the long-term cost. I mean, the short-term cost have been obvious that the British pound has I mean it went from being one the day of the leave campaign it went from being 150 American to being like about 132 it's and dropping yeah yeah I'm not sure I'm not, I'm not sure where it stands today okay. I mean as you talk to me I'll tell okay. you okay right um, right right well your your colleague uh, Miguel Moyers posited a quote that a true Brexit could actually be good for the European Union. How do you see that happening? Well, that's that's an argument from the. Um, yes, it's one thirty. By it the is way, 130. Okay, it's one thirty. Right that's an argument from the um, um, the French Italian model, right? Okay. See, the, yes, indeed, by getting rid of the people who have always been reluctant Europeans, you make it possible to have more more Europe. Now, what does that actually mean? Yeah. This is where the, the, a bit of technicality comes in order. You have to understand the euro was created in order and it was really it was created um, in the 1990s as a, as a kind of a, a concept, but it, it wasn't actually put into practice um, until between 2002 and 2004 it comes online. Now, it's a weird project because it's a common currency for a very large number of countries, not every member of the European Union, but for very the vast majority are members right, of like the Right, like the Europe. Danes are still on the crown. Right. Um, and the East European countries have not yet joined also. Uh, except not all of them. The, the, Slovene, Some, the Slovenes have joined. Slovenes, and maybe okay. maybe Slovak, the Slovaks have joined too. I can't remember. I, I, I'm not positive. Um, so it's a common currency, but here's the trick. They have no common budget. Yeah, that's... Okay. So, and they have no common treasury. That is, each country's treasury is issuing its own euros. That is, there's no real control over when a country starts spending like a drunken sailor. That's, of course, what happened in Greece. So, the question here becomes the question how can you have a common currency without having a common treasury? 
How can you have a common treasury without having a common budget? How can you have a common budget without having the one institution that authorizes the spending of the money? The bank. The parliament. The, the, okay. Right? right? How can you have a common uh, budget without having a common parliament? So you see the logic, the logic of economic integration, true economic integration, eventually leads you to political integration. This has always been the dream of the Euro enthusiasts. This has always been the dream of people who argue that once it's like riding a bicycle, you have to keep on going forward. That's what Europe's like. And so um, this has always been the dream. So by kicking out someone like Britain, you kick out or by having them removed from the equation, you remove a potential uh, blockage to creating a, co a genuine common European Parliament. Right? That is in which you have elections, in which the European Parliament becomes like Congress in the United States. Right? We do have a common Parliament in the United States. We have a dollar and we have Congress, and Congress passes legislation which authorizes, bank. and yeah. we have centralized banking. Well, there is a European Central Bank. There is also a European Central Bank. But the European Central Bank doesn't have, uh, ultimately, the real backup for the American Central Bank is the American people, whose will is expressed through Congress. Right? Okay, if Congress wants to give the bank more money, it can. And so that's what you don't have in Europe. And so really, I mean, European further European integration, what is true about what my colleague Carolina um, said in Toronto was that um, um, your further European integration has always come in the wake of crises. Crises have always produced more European integration in the end. Now, this is kind of a really big crisis. This isn't a little tiny crisis. This is, you know, this is the potential for countries to show they want out. Right? And, of course, the European Union has itself the incentive to show how miserable that process will be for anyone who wants to get out. So we're running way out of time, but let's, I'd like to have you give us an idea of, when you're saying that, that the U.K. is in a very weak position of negotiating is David Cameron, I mean, he's he's going to be the head of state until about September, but yes. who's going to, so two years time that, uh, that, that the watch is set for the Lisbon Treaty, the Article 5, Article 50 being invoked. So who's going to negotiate this? And the, or is it, it's the, the party in power's leader then yes. so after Cameron. So the first thing you have to remember, in order for Article 50 to be invoked, the British Parliament has to invoke it. So it is quite possible that the British Parliament could wait and wait and wait and wait and not actually ever invoke it. In which so case they the can just future. say, you know, the Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, never mind, right? They just say, we don't, we don't want to do this in the end. But they won't. They'll have pressure from those 17 million that cast the vote. Yes, they say, we voted, we you're not actually supporting action us. on our vote. Yeah. Right. And the United Kingdom Independence Party, you can be sure, will keep on speaking in these terms. But in the meantime, whoever gets elected leader of the uh, Conservative <sighs> yeah. Party, once they invoke Article 50, is going to be saddled with this thing. And I would not want to be in their shoes. I would not want their career because they're just going to be bringing a lot of bad news back to Great Britain and say, look, what can we do? The Germans don't want to don't want to do what we want them to do, what the, we want them to do. And so that's the end of it. Right. And so at that point, any leader who's having to head up these negotiations is going to be a very unpopular person. The bills are going to mount with the expats coming back, the, the, tr the dues for um, whatever kind of 
membership, whatever uh, additional uh, defense expenditure. I mean, it's just it's, All, they're really I mean, racking up a tab. There, there will be a tab. Um, Britain's going to try to minimize that tab by saying to the rest of Europe, "Look, you need us. We have the great relationship with the Americans. We're your kind of passport to the to the to the rest of the world. We're the big English speaking country." And we'll see whether the Europeans actually buy any of that. I don't think the, the Great Britain is in a great negotiating position here. But, you know, things change over time. I think, you know, the hope is that over the course of the next year, a chunk of the British public reconsiders its opinion. Well, they start. They are starting. And, a, and somebody calls an election on that issue. So if you call an election on that issue, if you say, look, we're going to call an election. On the Article 50? No, we call an election and regular parliamentary election. Okay. And they say, our main issue in this election is vote for me if you want to stay in, okay, in the European Union. Make that, that a kind of, in essence, a second referendum. Okay. That's um, what you were envisioning when we were talking about that. Yes. Okay. Well, that is going to be the wrap then. Jeffrey Kopstein, thank you so much for coming in studio and filling in all these blanks. It's been a, a uh, we're all going to keep chewing on the coverage and... Uh, and I just uh, let you close and really fast. What are your favorite sources for covering the European Union? The Financial Times, The Economist, and I, is I, the Guardian doing any good job? The Guardian's good, I, um, especially because you get the left side. And also, I read if you read German Die Zeit, which is the German version of the kind Times. of the yeah. Times. But also, Der Spiegel has an English version, so you can actually look at them too, because it's very good, important to read what the Germans are saying about all of, of this. Of course, as you can point out. Well, thank you so much. Jeffrey Kopstein, for being on the show today. It's good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll have some experts uh, involved in the Danish enterprise, Universal Robots, open house at Irvine Spectrum at their new West Coast headquarters. Especially if you are affiliated with, with UCI School of Engineering, you can mark it on your calendars for July 13th from 9 to 3. They apparently want your talent. And as the Muslim members of our community conclude Ramadan with Eid Fest tonight, I wish you all well. I hope you'll have a lovely feast with your loved ones tonight. We'll be back then next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hey.